0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We might say that Dante belongs to the ages. We wouldn't be the first to think that, and we won't be the last. In some ways, his poetry is as fresh as anything written today. His devotion, his passions, his sensitivity, his power, his art. And yet, Dante Alighieri was also very much of his time, as anyone who likes to read footnotes can attest. Theological discussions are rooted in fierce contemporary debates. Historical references are to figures important to him and his peers. Characters are specific to his period, his location, even his own life. And so, when we seek to wrestle with a work as great as the Divine Comedy— we're invited into Dante's world, his mind, his relationships with others, his understanding of his place in the cosmos. And everything about the man, the poet, the human being, becomes of interest. Enter the scholars. Today we have a discussion with Professor Elizabeth Coggeshall, who has sliced an essential aspect of life from the Dantean cake. It's a question so essential and so obvious, it's almost hard to see. What did Dante think of friendship? Well, what do we think of friendship? We know it when we see it. It's hard to define. But jumping back seven centuries or more to a world dominated by their own struggles, political and religious, their own social norms, their views of who people were and how they should interact and throw in Dante's own idiosyncratic genius, well, the question becomes a fascinating one. Friendship. What was it? In Beatrice and Virgil, Dante gave his poetic narrator two of the greatest companions a character, real or fictive, could ever have. Were they friends? How so? And was this unusual for Dante's time? What exactly did friendship mean to Dante? And how did that change his art? And what does any of this mean to us? Elizabeth Coggeshall helps us negotiate friendship in Dante's Italy today on the History of Literature. Okay, hello, hello, hello. Ciao, amici. Here we go. We travel back to my beloved Italy to spend some time with Dante today. I'm impatient to get there, so... Let's hurry up and go. Andiamo, ragazzi. That word always reminds me of my friend who wore a beret and called himself part of the ragazzi della strada, the kids of the street. I have no idea why. Maybe he, <laughs> maybe he thought he was in a gang. A gang of one. <laughs> Good guy, a little weird. He used to whistle sometimes instead of talk. He kind of got his point across, I suppose. Okay, here we go. In our archives, you can find an episode. One of my favorites with my old friend, Italian professor Ellen, who was here to talk about Dante's La Vita Nuova. And today a new friend, Professor Elizabeth, who's carrying the torch forward. And we are putting plenty of Dante on the calendar soon. And hang around for the end when we'll dive into a My Last Book with Dr. Tara Bynum. We'll see what she chose for the last book she will ever read. But first... Dante and the concept of amista Okay, joining me now is Dr. Elizabeth Coggeshall, who is an assistant professor of Italian at Florida State University. She's here today to discuss her new book on Amistà, Negotiating Friendship in Dante's Italy. Beth Coggeshall, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So before we turn to the book, I thought we'd start with you and your background. What inspired your interest in Italian and Italian literature?
1: Sure. It's a, it's a question I answer for my students all the time. So I'm a professor of Italian, but I have no Italian heritage at all. I started studying Italian as a, as a college student for that very traditional American college student reason of wanting to study abroad in Italy.
0: Mm, where did you go?
1: I went to Rome for nine months oh, as an undergraduate. Wow. At the, I was an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And it was the first year they had their Rome program. And so I, part of the reason that I chose Notre Dame was because I knew about the study abroad opportunities, and it was the one thing that I knew I wanted to get out of my college experience. And so I started taking Italian from day one. And I had this encounter with my Italian professor in in my language class. You know, I was a an 18-year-old um, first-year college student, and my language professor pulled me aside after class. It was maybe the, the even like the second or third day of class. She pulled me aside and asked me if I would join her for key. And, you know, coming out of high school, I'd never I'd never <laughs> spoken to a teacher outside of class like that. It felt really um, unusual. And so we sat down and, and had a, a nice conversation over key. And partway through the conversation, she she looked at me and she said, you're thinking about transferring, aren't you? And I and it was funny because I had been, I, you know, I had, I had very quickly identified Notre Dame as a, a, a wonderful space for intellectual engagement. And I knew I was going to learn so much. And it was really it was an incredible school, but it was not a place that I fit in socially. And, and there was a, a clear visual marker of that by the fact that when I started college, my hair was bright blue. And I was you know the only person on campus that had any anything, you know, so clearly identifiable as a marker of non-tradition. Yeah. And so she said, you're thinking about transferring, aren't you? And I said, yes. And she said, University of Chicago. Right. And I said, yes. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I don't know how she knew that. I've I've never known how she knew that. But she (laughs) she said, you know, I'd like you to make me two promises. She said, I'd like you to promise me that you'll give it a year um, because you, you can't judge a place until you've given it a full year. And in addition to that, I'd like you to promise that during the course of that year, you'll try to take a class. With Christian Maves. Um, Christian Maves was a faculty member in the in the Romance Languages Department. He taught Italian literature and specifically Dante. Notre Dame has this very long history of Dante's incredible Dante professors. They have this sort of enormous collection of of Dante's works in their library. They have this Center for Italian Studies that's very active in the world of medieval literature. Mm-hmm. These incredible Dante scholars. And so she said, you know, please take a class with Christian Mates before you finish this year. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do my best. And I did. I took a class with Christian in my second semester, and we read Dante in the first few weeks. We read just a couple of cantos of the poem, and, and I fell in love. I fell in love with Dante. I fell in love with Christian's teaching. I fell in love with, sort of felt like I had found um, something that could orient me in mm. my studies. Mm-hmm. And so as a second-year student, I went back and took a full-year sequence of courses. They called them Dante I and Dante II, where we read Inferno in the Fall, Purgatorio in Paradiso in the Spring. And, you know, we were probably just starting Paradiso, and I decided, okay, this is it. I want to dedicate my life to the study of this poem. I want to do this kind of teaching. I want to be this kind of professor for other students, and I want the focus of my studies to be this poem. Wow. And so... I stuck with Italian for that reason, Um, even though it was incredibly difficult. I'm, I'm not a natural language learner. I really struggled through learning Italian, but the thing that kept me coming back to it was my love for the poem.
0: So what was it about Dante and the poem in particular that gave it such an appeal for you?
1: Yeah, it started because the poem really felt like a puzzle that I was trying to put together. So you know, I'd come from Catholic schools. I went to Catholic school my entire life, from kindergarten all the way through college, and so I had a lot of exposure to the scriptures, to the gospels, and there were so many allusions to Catholic literature mm-hmm.
2: that I just found
1: so interesting in the poem. And then I had studied Latin as a high school student, which is why I sought to study abroad in Rome in the first place, and. And there were all these references to Virgil and Ovid and other Latin poets that I had studied as a high school student. And so I felt like I was kind of piecing together this intertextual puzzle that I found so exciting. Mm. And I, I knew I would never get to the bottom of it. Yeah. And then on top of that, Christian Maeve's specific teaching style was such that the poem just felt like it was Actually, one of my students put it best. A student of mine said this a couple of years ago. She said, it it doesn't feel like I'm reading the poem. It feels like the poem is reading me. And that's been my experience of that poem ever since the first time I picked it up. It's always felt like the poem is reading
0: me. Reading you in the sense that it's sort of there for you no matter what your mood is. And it kind of reflects what you're thinking, but also accentuates it or, or points you in different directions that hit you at a particular time.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not only that it reflects what I'm thinking, it's that it challenges what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. It makes me question my assumptions. It makes me sort of puzzle through my life in ways that I wouldn't have anticipated a medieval poem could do, especially a medieval Catholic poem or a Christian poem, let's call it. You know, like I said, I was, I went to Catholic schools my whole life, but I, and I was raised Catholic, but I'm no longer Catholic. And, and faith is something that I've really struggled with as a, as an individual. Mm-hmm. And not that I reject it, but that I, I just, I don't, I, I sort of don't know where I come down on questions of faith. And, and so the poem has been, has represented this kind of opportunity for me to explore that part of my, of my upbringing and that part of my mental life, my spiritual and mental life that I just wouldn't, I would never have anticipated. And it always seems to find new ways of challenging me to ask a different question about the way I live my life. Mm.
0: Wow, it's so beautiful. Uh, it really it makes me think of all of the other great works of literature in the way i've I've talked to people who have said similar things about Homer or uh, you know, a work of Shakespeare's or the Bible, or you know, there mm-hmm. is something about these deep books that can reach across the centuries and find us in that way. and and uh, like you said, be there almost as if it's anticipating us and is providing us what we need at a particular time.
3: Right.
1: Yeah, many people would, would talk about those texts that you're mentioning, Homer, Shakespeare, Dante, the Bible, as um, universal, mm-hmm. as speaking to some kind of universal truth that that transcends time or transcends space. I, I've thought a lot about that in recent years because I work a lot on the reception of Dante's poem in the 20th and 21st centuries. I have a website website, that I'm a co-editor of it's a digital archive that catalogs references to Dante's work in contemporary culture. And, you know, so I thought I've worked with a lot of students on these questions and, and um, given a lot of talks on this. And one of the things that I think a lot about is Dante's particular brand of universality is one that, that goes through the local first. Mm. And so he, he, it's not like he's, you know talking about the world in terms that would be accessible to someone who is not a medieval Florentine, you have to really start with medieval Florence or or medieval Italian city states uh, in the north of Italy, and you can then extrapolate from that by analogy to your world because he's such a keen observer of the local yeah. and the specific that it trains your eye to you know especially when you spend time as all of us have all of us TC have when you spend time really trying to understand what what he meant in his local context by that word or with that reference then it it opens up this opportunity for you to think how would that resonate for me right now i'm in for 2024 in Tallahassee Florida how can i think about my politics or my ethics or my my mindset Um, in terms that mirror Dante's without being, you know, an exact replica of what he's doing, right? In terms that sort of resonate with his, without copying.
0: Right. It's like the first time when I read uh, Paradiso and and you see Beatrice there. And I, I didn't think... Oh, when I get to heaven, if I'm lucky enough to go there, I will see Beatrice. It made me kind of think through, well, this is how she was this important to Dante. This is what she stood for in Dante's mind and in his life. And I love the uh, La Vita Nova and, and kind of the whole he loved her so strongly that he elevated her to that position. And it was his way of communicating a kind of abstraction to us was to stay in the local in the particular of his own life and his own world.
1: Right. Yes, that's that's exactly the way that I approach it. And, and I think that it, it lends itself so well to this long tradition of reception where poets or artists will think to themselves, you know, not only how do I represent Virgil or Beatrice or some of these other figures in my own time, but who is my Virgil? Mm. Who is my Beatrice? I mean, it happens especially with Virgil. There's a poet. She had been the Poet Laureate of Jamaica for for several years, I think 2016 to 2020, although I might be wrong about the years. Her name is Lorna Goodison. Oh, sure. And um, she's recently embarked on a long project of translating all of the Inferno. Mm. And she's published select cantos over the years Inferno 1, Inferno 15, recently one from Audio. And it's really interesting to talk to her. So, you know, her, reading her Inferno 1, originally she had Derek Wolcott, the St. Lucian poet, as her Virgil.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And over time, she has changed that. She's revised that Virgil and has now chosen Louise Bennett, Miss Lou, who's a, another, you know, really critical figure in Jamaican poetry. And so, you know, even seeing a single translators or a single artist or adapters, you know, the various iterations that that Virgil can take as their life changes or as their thinking changes or it's just really like thinking by analogy in those terms is really, I find that really like a fascinating avenue that the poem opens up for us.
2: Right.
0: Okay. So let's move toward the book and Amistad, Negotiating Friendship, Dante's Italy. What led you to the writing of this book? What, what question were you hoping to address?
1: I got interested in it in the first place. If you'll permit me, I'll share an anecdote. Sure. Um, I got interested in the question because I, I met my best friend in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And she was also pursuing a PhD, but in French. She was a year ahead of me in our PhD program and she works on contemporary French literature. So, you know, as contemporary as this year, I mean, things that are coming out right now in French literature. And she was, as I said, a year ahead of me in the program. And so she was in the process of writing her dissertation while I was still kind of casting around trying to figure out what I wanted to write about. And we would go together to a coffee shop and study and we would sit, read, not talk a whole lot. And then we would take a break and we would, step outside and get some of the California sunshine and take a minute to kind of check in with each other about what we were doing and and what questions we were asking, what we were currently working on, how we were thinking about something, or to just, you know, chat. I mean, we also just enjoyed our conversations with each other. But I started thinking through the course of doing this over many months, I started thinking, well, I wonder if Dante would have done this with any of his friends, if that's the kind of relationship that he would have had with, say, his friend Guido Cavalcanti, who was
2: Mm-hmm. His best
1: friend, someone that he came, or someone he calls his best friend, his first friend, someone that he came up with in Florence, like someone who was also a, an up and comer um, in the on the poetic scene of Florence. And I just thought, you know, I wonder if they would sit together in quiet moments and exchange ideas in this way. And so, as we exchange ideas, how much can we really think about a, an idea as our own, or is it an idea that's born in conversation and a dialogue with another individual and with a friend specifically? And so that's how the question started, but it's really changed quite a bit over the course of research. So at the outset, when I was writing a dissertation, I was interested in these biographical experiences of friendship, and you know, how much can we understand who Dante's friends were by the sources that we have, and
2: mm-hmm. um, how
1: he thought about those friendships. And that worked as a dissertation, but I, I don't—I wasn't quite satisfied with the approach. And so when I started working on the book, I actually threw the, the entire dissertation away and started completely from scratch, thinking instead about, not about the biographical experience of friendship, but the uses of friendship, um, especially the uses of the terms of friendship, because I don't know how much access we have to Dante's intimate thoughts and experiences. What we have are texts that do things in very tactical and strategic ways depending on the context in which they're seeking to intervene. And so I started to think more in sociological terms about how does Dante use the word friend when he calls mm. Guido Cavacanti his friend? What is he trying to gain by placing Guido Cavacanti in that position in the Vita Nuova? Or how does it serve him to make reference to his friend, Chino da Pistoia, who was another poet of the of the era? also a really important networker? How does it serve him to position himself as friend of Tino W. Soya in this treatise on the vernacular that he's written? Hmm. How does it serve him to call a patron a friend in the very particular way that he does? So those are, the kind, those are the questions that animated the book, and they're the questions that I seek to answer in the book.
0: Was there some reason why you took as a kind of assumption that Dante was being strategic or technical when he was using that word? Is it something particular about Dante, or is that your view of friendship in general, that that's how you could assess anyone's use of that word?
1: So, um, let me think about that. That's a difficult question. I think trying to resurrect the experience of someone who died 700 years ago. Mm-hmm it's difficult to say that we could ever put our finger on, you know, true biographical experience, Mm -hmm. especially if something as intimate as friendship. Yeah. And I think part of why I approached it in the terms that I did is because friendship becomes a very slippery term right around the time period that Dante's writing, at least that's how I see it. So when you're writing about friendship in earlier periods, I mean, even in earlier periods, you see it too, where the there are monks that, wh- whose letter collections we have, for example, who would also use the terms of friendship in these kind of strategic ways. Or there are rhetorical manuals from the period where where. These rhetoricians would explain to, would explain in in their manuals or in their textbooks exactly how to use the terms of friendship, when to use them, when you can't use them,
2: Mm.
1: when it's appropriate and when it's not. And so there was, I think there's always a lot of strategy around the way that we use that word. I mean, even when we use it in our intimate relationships or in our intimate terms, there are strategies around it, or there are ways of doing it correctly and incorrectly. I always remember when I was a, a very young child, I remember meeting a girl at a playground, and um, I was probably six years old or five years old. And we played at the park together for several hours. And at the end of it, I said, will you be my friend? And she rolled her eyes at me and said, that's not how you do it. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't state it outright, um, right. or at least not in that way. And so I think that term is one that we tend to create it as if it's so obvious what we mean when we say friend. But we use it in these very slippery ways and these very ambiguous ways that I think, to me, it felt really important to do the work of trying to suss that out.
0: Right. So your introduction is subtitled The Dilemmas of Friendship in Dante's Italy. So what particular dilemmas do you see?
1: This is a question that comes out of Thinking about the ways that classical sources like Cicero, like Aristotle, were mm-hmm. integrated into um, Christian ethics, mm-hmm. and so we might think, for example, one of the one of the dilemmas that I'm really interested in is the dilemma of inclusivity or exclusivity: whether friendship makes us better members of our larger community, or whether it distracts us or detracts from the ability of individuals to find themselves bonded to every member of the community. Mm. So for example, you know, I I found myself thinking about the question of if theoretically we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, what does it mean if I feel a particular affection for my best friend? Like, does that make me more integrated into the community of brothers and sisters or does it pull me away from that community? Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I explore different dilemmas like that, sort of philosophical dilemmas that I see friendship creating for a Christian community, especially a a Christian community of poets. Um, Ways that friendship works with the ambitions and the visions of that community and ways that it works against the vision of community as it stands.
0: Right, because he was so infused with that, and that that was such a, it was the water he swam in, so to speak, Right, that it would naturally be on his mind in some sense of what it means for him to be a friend or to use the word friend in the context of he's trying to negotiate all of the social and ethical boundaries that he's got placed before him.
3: Right, right.
1: So, for example, you know, another dilemma that I look at is self-interest in the theoretical writing about friendship, both classical and Christian. One was meant to be friends with someone, whether they gave you anything or not, whether they're, you know, in in fact, not for any interest on your part. It was supposed to be entirely disinterested. And so what do you do if you find yourself suddenly exiled from your city and in extreme need? Living in poverty with nowhere to go, how do you call on a friend without also demonstrating self interest? And so these are the the kind of difficult needles that Dante had to thread as he was writing the texts that he wrote over the course of his career.
0: Right. And for us looking back, this is going to sound like a wrap up question. Maybe I'll do this and then we'll go to a break. For us looking back, we look at the way Dante is thinking of friendship and we compare that with our own experiences and think, well, he, given his, uh, the different world he lived in, how much is still the same and how much has changed and what can it teach us about the way we view friendship to, to see what might be different in the way he does.
1: Mm -hmm. And another thing that I was thinking a lot about as I was working on this project is the ways that we would differentiate. This is, you know, not something so much that it feels very alive today as, as Facebook declines, but the ways that we think about, you know, the difference between a friend and a Facebook friend
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. um, or the difference between, you know, a- any friends that you would have on a social media site. Or when we talk about we even still talk about friends in terms of patronage. So um, someone may be a friend of the museum or a friend of the historical society, which really just means you give money. And yeah. so it, it, there are, again, it's this very slippery term. Um, and I think we can see ourselves as, I don't know that I want to say we can see ourselves as heirs of Dante's way of thinking, but, but looking at how Dante is thinking through these questions, I think is instructive for the ways that we frame our own relationships, our own friendships today.
0: Mm. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more from Elizabeth Kakeshaw. Okay, we're back. So, Elizabeth, let's turn to the Divine Comedy and that moment where Beatrice turns up with Virgil. What's going on in that passage?
1: Okay, so Dante has already found himself lost and alone in a dark wood, very famously. Part of the fear that he experiences in the first canto of the poem is his isolation, his solitude. He He's alone confronting these three beasts and has no idea how to move forward. And the solace that he receives is in the person of Virgil, or really in the ghost of Virgil, the shade of Virgil, who comes to find him in the dark wood and says, I will lead you on another path. And and um, so he and Virgil set off and take the path that they will eventually take, which leads them through the inferno. In the second canto, Dante stops, and he has a a moment, another moment of fear, as if the first canto was just a false start. And he says, I I can't do this. I'm not a great hero. I'm not, I'm not a saint. I'm not a great figure. How can I be the one to travel on this journey? So Virgil tells him a story. He says, you know, a, a, a woman came to me, a woman from heaven came to me, and she's the one that sent me on this path to come and collect you, to come and help you make your way through the inferno. And when she comes to set Virgil on the path, she says, I need you to help my friend, Hmm. l'amico mio. That's how she refers to Dante. Yeah. And what's puzzling about this is that, I mean, there are many things that are puzzling about this, but one of the things that I find puzzling about this is that she's the only character in the entire poem to refer to the pilgrim as a friend. There are, you know, many other friends that Dante meets, especially in Purgatory, which is has been described as the canticle of friendship. Uh, I mean, you know, sort of one episode after another of Dante encountering a friend or of Dante meeting a shade who provides some kind of consolation or who gives direction or orientation, all the things that we would anticipate that friends do. But the language of friendship doesn't really appear in Purgatory, at least not nearly as much as we might anticipate it, given all these encounters with friends. And none of the figures, even these old um, intimate friends of, of Dante's, like Fure de Donati that he meets in in Canto 23 of Purgatory, or Cazella that he meets in Canto 2, these, these figures that we know were biographical friends of his, they don't use the word friend with him. They use the word brother, almost as if it's a corrective to this earlier kind of language, almost as if the word friend is, is no longer to be permitted in this space. And yet there's Beatrice. There's Beatrice right at the beginning of the poem who says to Virgil, I need you to go and rescue l'amico mio, my friend. And so this is really the origin point of a lot of the project. It's the, the question that I begin with in the introduction to the book. It's the question that I return to in the conclusion. And I'll be honest and say that I don't feel like I have a very satisfying answer to it, why she uses this word, amico, and, and especially amico mio, using the, that possessive my to describe him. That word has a long resonance in a couple of traditions. The troubadours would frequently use the word amico or ami to describe their lovers. It's used in the song of songs. The bridegroom says to the bride who describes the bride as a friend. It's used in the letters of Heloise to Abelard. These, you know, again, erotic letters or, or erotically charged letters. She says she would prefer that Abelard refer to her as Amica. Which is um, translated as mistress, and so there are all these eroticizing usages of the word, and so and so of course it's natural for us to read Beatrice's amico mio as resonant with all of that erotic usage. We would think that she's really referencing an erotic tradition, my friend, as in my lover, but it's also it also has this long tradition in Cicero in Aristotle which is decidedly not erotic. I mean, you can certainly be friends with your spouse um, or be friends with, uh, in Aristotle especially, you can be friends with people of the opposite sex. You can be friends with all kinds of people for a variety of reasons and to a variety of ends. But the conflating of the term of friendship with, with erotic relationships is not really something that we see in the classical sources. And it's not something that we see elsewhere in Dante's works, at least not so prominently. And so it's surprising to hear her use this term. It also, you know, the term comes up in erotic ways, again, later in the poem, where he describes Tassonus, who was the lover of the dawn, as a friend. There are a couple of places where he uses the word amico to mean lover, or amica to mean lover. But it just seems really different coming out of the mouth of Beatrice and being the only reference to the Pilgrim that we get in the in the course of the poem and then on top of that it it comes in the mouth of Virgil who is reporting it back to Dante you know Dante doesn't hear Beatrice say those words he hears it in the mouth of Virgil and Virgil is not always the most reliable reporter And so, you know, how are we meant to understand this? I think it's one of the most complicated questions of the poem. And again, one of the most complicated questions of the book as well. And something that I, like I said, I start with and then I come back to at the end. Yeah.
0: Let me roll out a theory. Sure. (laughs) See see what you think of this. So I'm wondering if, I mean, he had such an unusual relationship with Beatrice in his life. You would think if you just read, you know, a one paragraph a description of Dante and his love for Beatrice, you would think that they had been married for 20 years or something, and maybe she died young or something. But you would think that they had been a much more consummated couple than they actually mm-hmm. were. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if He's trying to express this love, and he's basically saying, Well, it wouldn't be honest if she called me lover or husband or, or something like that because we didn't progress that far. But she would call me friend, which is as, as sort of as close as he can get to her, or as you know, it's, it's the most affectionate thing he can think of that she could actually use to describe the way she felt about him and the relationship that they had. But then once he's used that, he no longer wants to allow anyone else to use it in reference to him because he wants it to be this almost sacred connection that he ha- that he felt with Beatrice. That it's sort of like, mm-hmm. well, now I'm going to, I don't want to water it down if I have, you know, these guys that I've <laughs> drank some wine with once. Right. Uh, you know, I don't want that guy to be using this special term. I've got to kind of keep it sacred, keep it holy, and just keep it in the in the mouth of Beatrice.
1: hmm Yeah, I, I, I think that theory holds water. I mean, I think that's certainly a plausible explanation of it. One of the further questions that the term raises for me is what happens to that very sacred, very special, and very preferential relationship between Dante and Beatrice once Dante ascends to heaven as one of the blessed? Not as a pilgrim, but as one of the blessed. Like once he joins that blessed community, once he is purged of his sin yeah, right. and, and finds himself in Paradiso as a saved soul, then what happens? Yeah. And um, obviously, we, we don't have an answer to that question, right? Because we only see the pilgrim as a pilgrim. We only see him you know, on this journey in the flesh, in his living body, or out of the body, we don't know we only see him as a living person making this pilgrimage. But one of the questions that, that really intrigues me about this is what will happen? What can we speculate will happen to that relationship once Dante passes beyond the threshold of life? Yeah. And it's a question that, that we can ask about any of the blessed in the community of paradise, the way that Dante envisions it. Right. Um, what are their relationships to one another? And do those, do those relationships continue to matter when, you know, in the final analysis, all of their attentions are directed to God and, and are rightly directed to God, right? They're, they're, all yeah. of their enjoyment is refracted through their, 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 um, their joy in gazing upon the light that is God, right? the light and the love that are God.
0: It must have been something that was on his mind all the time. That, I would imagine you know, so. Well, like, what is this going to mean for me? If I, when I, if and when I see Beatrice in heaven, are we going to feel, am I going to feel this kind of love and will it be amplified in some way? Will it, will it feel better than it does currently? It seems like it will be, you know, that it will just expand into something infinite and, and pure and beautiful. But at the same time, why wouldn't I feel that with everybody else too? And why? would it detract from it? Is it impossible to just have that with one person in heaven? Because isn't that, you know, maybe we would be feeling that kind of universality with everybody who's there. But on the other hand, like, it seems like he would want that and not want it at the same time.
1: Absolutely. And and this is, this is the dilemma, one of the dilemmas that I write about in, in paradise. You know, how, how are we supposed to think about that question of inclusive or exclusive love? Um, or, you know, another way to put it is preferential love. How am I supposed to think about the fact that I have a preference for this individual and I hope that they have that same preference for me? What will happen to that once life is past and all of the purgation is past and all we are now doing is enjoying this eternal present, this eternity of reflection on divinity, mm. on the source of divinity, on the source of being itself? Yeah. And so, There's a moment that there have been some excellent studies on this and especially by um, a scholar named Manuele Graniolati, who writes really beautifully about ways that he speculates that Dante believed that we would experience relationships Mm. once we pass the threshold of life.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: He thinks that Dante still really clings to the idea of individual preferential love and finds a way to accommodate that within his scheme. And a part of me really agrees with Granulati that that, there's so much left in the poem that suggests that. There's so much residue of that individual kind of love in the poem that it's difficult to say that Dante just sets all that aside or that he imagines that we would set all that aside when when we finally do pass into a state of blessedness. But there's a moment that, you know, I, I, was, I was rereading Paradiso, and I was trying to answer this question, so I was reading it specifically with this question in mind. And there's a moment as Dante and Beatrice ascend to the heaven of the sun, where Beatrice directs Dante to look at the source of the, mm. the sun's light. And the sun is always, for Dante, is always a, a symbol of God, yet another um, a sort of um, figure of God's love in the world. And so he looks directly at the sun. He looks, his, his gaze bypasses Beatrice and he looks directly at the source. And he feels lost in it. I mean, he feels this, this overwhelming desire to keep his, to sustain that image in his gaze, like just to, to keep his gaze there. And he says that he momentarily forgets Beatrice mm-hmm. as the vision of her is eclipsed by the vision of the source of yeah. the vision of the sun. Yeah. And it's that moment of eclipse that I find really beautiful and intriguing for the ways that we think about friendship in the space of blessedness. He doesn't sustain it. He, he falls very quickly back into his, his humanness. And especially he's brought back into it when he sees Beatrice's dazzling smile, you know, she smiles at the moment that she sees him do this. And so she she agrees with his, she says what he has done is correct. Like he has directed his attention correctly by bypassing her and forgetting her. But in that moment where she smiles, he's brought right back into being a human again and, and loving her again and, and, you know, loving the particular again, as opposed to the direct source, as opposed to the universal. Yeah. And so all of paradise is him being sort of torn between these two extremes. Paradise is full of doubts and questions and conflicts and dilemmas that, you know, originally I wanted to say that those dilemmas would be resolved as he writes. That these paradoxes that friendship represents for, for a Christian writer, especially a Christian writer who's so invested in the classical authorities, that those dilemmas would be resolved, but they're not resolved at all. Yeah. um he continues to move between them all the way up through to the the last line of the paradiso
0: cuz you can take as kind of a first step into say well this is this is maybe the only way we can understand heaven is to think well that's where we'll be reunited with the people we love and who love us the right. most and and that's it's a very human thing to try to understand something that we can't understand through you know the the best feeling we have or the the greatest love that we've known but it seems like Dante then goes a step further and says, well, what if it's the only way for us to experience it as well? And what if there's no, you know, who will I be when I'm in heaven? And how will I share in the the love and the light that's there? Will I just completely dissolve? And so this question kind of goes away because if I keep who I am at all, what if that's the only way I can kind of participate in it if I'm given a kind of chance to to feel it how can I do that without Beatrice being part of it somehow
1: Right right Yeah I don't I think Dante would never abandon the idea of the self I think the self is so in all of its particularities is so crucial to his understanding of especially of paradise. Mm -hmm. But that there's a way of understanding the self as being, I don't know, it's having a kind of porous boundary, a kind of networked self that is who it is through the experiences and through the love of the people around us, right? The experiences Mm -hmm. that we have when we're alive and the loves of the people that we surround ourselves with. That those are essential to our understanding of who we are. And I don't think he would ever give that up. Even in, you know, when he imagines, when he speculates about the blissful experience of of the soul in a state of blessedness, I still don't think he would abandon the idea of the self with its history, with its particulars, with its set of relationships. But I don't think he would ever give that up. But I think that the way that he would imagine it is more, um gosh, how do you even put it? like a dissolution of that strict boundary that is maintained between you and me Mm. where that boundary becomes porous because you and me share in participate in being right. And because we participate in being, you know, we participate in divinity. Um, And so we are ourselves also part of this volume as he describes it that is bound by love but is scattered throughout the world as if it's in as if it can be dispersed in pages or in leaves
0: right well he may have left these as some unresolved questions but if he had answers we would probably find them to be flawed or incomplete i feel like his leaving these as questions is kind of the way, the reason why we keep returning to Dante to help us think through and, and explore these issues for ourselves.
1: Right. It's definitely what animated my, has always animated my relationship with him, with this poem.
0: Do you consider him a friend?
1: I consider the poem a friend, <laughs> if that makes sense. I, I, Dante himself was a, he, he, you know, by all accounts, had a prickly personality. It's difficult to know, again, what its biographical or affective experiences of the world might have been, but we know that he is a person of a lot of righteousness and even more disparagingly self-righteousness. You know, he he had a particular kind of moral vision. Whatever I may think of him, I don't think he would have thought of me as a friend. <laughs> um <laughs> But I do think of the poem as a friend. I mean, the poem has been, you know, it's been in my life since I was young, since I was 18. It's really shaped my, as we talked about at the beginning, it's shaped my view on ethics and on politics and on questions of faith. And so it's, it's the poem itself has really been a guide in a way that I would think of as, you know, it's been like a, a benevolent mentor.
0: Mm, isn't that interesting? It's almost like in the great social media of the history of literature, we friend the author and we friend the work, and the author leaves our invitation, doesn't respond, but the work friends us right back.
1: That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I like the metaphor.
0: Okay. The book is called An Amistà: Negotiating Friendship in Dante's Italy. Elizabeth Coggeshall, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature.
1: Thank you for having me again. This has been a real pleasure.
0: And finally today, we turn to Dr. Tara Bynum. After she and I discussed the reading experiences of everyday black Americans in the early United States, I asked her this special question. Okay, we are joined now by Dr. Tara Bynum, Assistant Professor of English and African American Studies at the University of Iowa. She's the author of the book, Reading Pleasures, Everyday Black Living in Early America. Dr. Bynum, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written.
3: I thought about this question Mm. and it feels like a tricky one. You know, I mean, there are a lot of books in the world that already exist. There are a lot more that could exist. There was a part of me that wondered if I should say my own book. Yep. Um but <laughs> I landed on Mama Day by Gloria Naylor.
2: Oh. Yeah.
3: I love Mama Day. Um, it is one of my favorite books. And I love it because it weds together so many of the things that I'm perpetually interested in. And you know, I think it blends together storytelling with history and ideas of the archive. There's a conversation that we can have about time. It's also a conversation to be had about like genealogy and family history, and, mm-hmm. and where does where does the knowledge that comes out of a place go when the people are no longer there? How do we remember? Can we always remember? Are things actually forgotten? I could go on and on and on, mm. but Mama Day wins. That I would love for that to be my last book.
0: Yeah how things are remembered. And you when you were here to talk about your book, we talked about uh, Uber Tanner and the way that she kept Phyllis Wheatley's letters for so long. It seems to kind of tie into the, a similar theme.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that... I'm not going to say that she thought about those letters every day. I have no way to prove that. But in her thinking, she still knew that she had to keep them somewhere and keep them safely somewhere. And the thing that I didn't mention before was that the last extant letter of 1779, the Revolutionary War doesn't end until 1783. So there's still war going on. There's the War of 1812. There are other sorts of skirmishes. It's kind of Tanner's everyday life. So the possibility that she might have lost the letters mm. seems high, but she doesn't lose them because she you know i guess i would argue is trying to remember and wanting to remember so then when they're passed off there's a how does Kathleen beecher know to remember and i think that is part of what the mama day story begins to wonder about like not literally about uber tanner and Kathleen beecher but in its plot there's built in this idea of theorizing how we remember
0: yeah right and like we were saying it It gives us a different view of Phyllis Wheatley than we might otherwise have just from her poetry. But it also gives us this window into Uber Tanner, who might have otherwise disappeared to the sands of time.
3: Absolutely.
2: Mm,
0: Okay. So Mama Day by Gloria Naylor. I'm going to have to put that on my list. I have not read it.
3: Oh, it's such a good book. So good. I'm one who thinks that Gloria Naylor might be able to beat out Toni Morrison.
0: Ooh. Yeah.
3: As one of the greatest writers of all time.
2: Yeah. Uh,
3: and I think that she's she's a bit unsung. You know, I think that mm-hmm. before Toni Morrison's book get super popular, Gloria Naylor's are, yeah. you know. So Women of Brewster Place becomes a a movie long before any Toni Morrison book can. I think right. that Gloria Naylor has just not been as celebrated, um, I'm sure for various reasons as Toni Morrison. But I think she can run laps around the best Morrison. I'm just saying.
0: <laughs> okay, well, maybe we'll have to have you back when we do our Gloria Naylor episode.
3: I would love that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dr. Tara Vynum, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay, that's going to do it for this issue, this issue, this issue, like a magazine, an audio magazine, I guess. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature podcast. My thanks to Tara Bynum for her quick cameo. I haven't read Mama Day, but I do want to read it now. And to Elizabeth Coggeshall for that illuminating discussion about one of the greatest poets who ever lived, T.S. Eliot had Dante in a tie for first, I think, with Shakespeare. Certainly, he is up there. We need to do some more shows on Dante. It's an endlessly giving poem, The Divine Comedy. Okay, there we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.